Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, we're joined by Chris Cindy Cordova, full-time MBA, class of 2020. Fresh graduate and alumni, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. I'm excited to be here. How does it feel to be on the other side now, you know, done with school? Uh, that's very refreshing. <laughs> I graduated during COVID time. So I think for a moment there, I thought maybe graduation wasn't going to happen. So it's really refreshing to be on this other side. <laughs> yeah. You guys didn't have a commencement either, right? We didn't, no. Yeah, that's getting pushed to next May, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I'm asking this question too, because I know you're a mother of three daughters. You're in the full-time program, so extremely busy. Do you feel a void now that school is gone or has work filled that in? Work has definitely filled in the void. I think it's more manageable now that I'm not in school. My deadlines are a little bit more flexible and yeah, I kind of <laughs> manage my own schedule. So that, that helps. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> no, that's, it's one thing I've, I've been asking fresh grads because like I miss school a little bit. You're still up in the Bay, right? I'm not. I'm in Seattle now. Oh, you're in Seattle. Yeah. Okay. Was your family from Seattle before? No, or, um, I got a job offer for Amazon, and so I mm -hmm. we moved the family here. It was not That's on amazing. the radar before this. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, that makes sense. Let's take our listeners through your life journey, starting with where you were born. I was born and raised in LA. Which part? South Central LA. I, I was both born and raised right at the border of Watts and Compton, like literally blocks away from both. <laughs> That's my neighborhood. I went to school mostly in East LA, actually, um, K through eight, and then in South Central after that. So was bussed around quite a bit, but always in black and brown schools. Why did you go to school in East LA? At the time, so this was in the 90s, the schools in South Central were considered not the best. In LAUSD, they were one of some of the lowest performing schools. I tested into the gifted program when I was in kindergarten. And so my teacher recommended I go to a school that has a gifted program, which were not in my neighborhood. And right. she was afraid of how I would deal with being in a school that was not primarily minority because mm. I, I didn't have any experience going to schools like that. So, so she, she was the one that suggested the school in East LA. And so that's where I went. Um, everybody in my class was Latino and we were all in the gifted program. So mm. it was a, it was an interesting experience. How did the transportation work? I can't imagine that couldn't have been easy. No, yeah, I took the school bus every morning, had to be at the school bus stop by 6.30 in the morning to wow. get to school on time. And then would on the way back, would get back home like between 4.30 and 5 most days. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't really have after school programs or any of that because most of my time was on the school bus. In LA traffic. In LA traffic, yeah. <laughs> I was so always I, the, I, the last stop too, so it, it took the whole wow. time. <laughs> that's like as a kid, I, I can't imagine what you had to go through just to be able to go to a better school. That's amazing. Tell us uh, a little bit about your family. Yeah, so my my parents are both from El, El Salvador. They both immigrated here during the Civil War. So if you don't know, El Salvador had a eleven year long civil war throughout the eighties, ended in ninety one. And a lot of people were displaced during that time, either through death or migration. So right. both my parents were some of the people who fled during that time. They met in LA, got married in LA, and they were both, at the time, they were both garment workers. They worked in sweatshops in downtown LA. 
I think, I believe that's how they met actually. But my mom continued to work in sweatshops for quite some time. My dad actually left industry to start his own business. He started a trucking business. So he, he gathered money to buy trucks and, and that on his own. Um, his brothers were also part of the family business. And so he did that for a while. He passed away actually when I was five years old. So after that, I was raised just by with my mom and me and my um, three other siblings. And we were very low income. We lived um, at the time in South Central, just barely making ends meet. For periods of time, we were on food stamps, on welfare at some times. From my dad's death, my siblings and I experienced a lot of trauma. And so my mom couldn't really work because she had to really be there, especially for my sister. So financially, it was just really difficult for her. But we had what we needed. She always made sure that we had what we needed. And she she also did a lot of side jobs, making clothes and selling it or making um, recuerdos. There are these like party favors that we use for quinceañeras and like different yeah. like Latino events. <laughs> um, and so she would make those to sell them as well. Wow. Are you the oldest? I'm not. I'm the second. My oldest sister is 10 years older than I am. She was actually born in El Salvador also. So she migrated to the U.S. with my mom. I see. It's amazing. I, I guess growing up, were there any defining moments that you remember? Because I imagine something transformative must have happened for you to uh, ultimately end up at Stanford. Yeah, there were a lot of transformative moments. I think, <laughs> I, I think for me, it starts with my father's death. That was a pretty defining moment for me. He committed suicide and I was five years old and I, I saw it. So that it had a big impact on me emotionally, but also as time went on, I think it defined a lot of how I saw my mom and mm -hmm. how I saw her struggle. So, you know, just seeing how hard she worked to make sure that we were okay and that what we, that we had what we needed. She valued education a lot and she made sure she instilled that in us. And so even though she was working all these side jobs and, and you know, trying to make ends meet, she was also going to community college in the evenings to better her English efforts and then to do child education classes. And so just seeing her work that hard to me, it, it made me feel like I have no excuse to not succeed and to not accomplish my dreams because she's worked hard for me already. And she's yeah. laid the groundwork for me. And as low income and as disadvantaged as maybe I was at the time, I, I didn't see it that way because I saw my mom's example and I saw that if if she can work that hard, then I can work just as hard or try to work just as hard to accomplish my dreams and not just help myself, but also help her. So let's fast forward a little bit into Stanford. How do we go from South Central to aerospace and astronautical engineering? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a hard time explaining that uh, because it wasn't a clear journey for me. I, I was lucky to have a lot of great teachers along the way who helped yeah. open doors for me. And without them, I wouldn't have 
been able to do any of it. And starting with my kindergarten teacher who even told us anything about what the gifted program was and what school to go to. That was like the first step there. But even along the way, you know, I had great math and science teachers in, in middle school who told me about engineering, had no idea what engineering was for a long time. And, you know, they helped teach me what that was and why I should even look into it as a career. And in high school, a lot of my teachers who were extremely supportive, my counselors who were very supportive and, and helping me find what schools I can apply to. All of them played a big role in my life. They, there were a lot of nonprofits that I was also involved with. So Coca-Cola had this nonprofit that at the time they're called Campaign Rock. Um, and they helped us learn about college and A through G requirements and just all, everything that we needed to know about how to get into college. And so yeah, I, all yeah. of those things just lined up to lay the groundwork for me to be able to even apply to college and to even think of Stanford as a possibility. That organization actually, I, I convinced the director to take me to see Stanford on a college tour. So we took a little detour from the original college tour so I could see Stanford because I, wow. I really wanted to go there. So that's how I think, you know, all of that led up to me ending up at Stanford. When I got there, I, I was still learning what engineering was. I, I still didn't really have an idea of what it was. I, I couldn't even really think of what a career would look like because I had never met an engineer in my life before. And right. Stanford actually has this really great summer program for incoming freshmen, uh, underrepresented minority freshmen who might be interested in engineering. One of the deans at the time there, he started this program to bring in freshmen for five weeks before school starts, spend those five weeks on campus and take different engineering classes with different professors to learn about the different types of engineering tracks. And that was really where I learned, like, what is an engineer and what is it that I'm actually going to study if I study this? I've always had a passion for space and flight. I think it comes from my dad, who was really into the model airplanes. Um, yeah, we used yeah. to go watch flight shows. And I, I was always really interested in it. I never thought it could be a career. But when I was there and listening to the professors, taking these sample classes with them, I, I realized that I, I really enjoyed that. I, I had a passion for that. And so from there on, I started studying aerospace engineering. And at the time, I was actually the only undergrad in the program because it was an independent study major. It wasn't an official major yet. And so I was the only undergrad taking it. Um, and then after me came larger and larger classes. That's cool. You were taking undergraduate courses with graduate students? So it was, yeah. it was graduate coursework, effectively. It was, yeah. The major was designed so that I took half of the coursework in the undergrad mechanical engineering, and then the other yeah. half was electives and that were graduate courses. I see. That's, that's amazing. What is the difference between aerospace and aeronautical? So aeronautics are things that fly, like airplanes, things that fly in our atmosphere. Got Astronautical it. are things that fly outside of our atmosphere. And then what does aerospace mean? Does that just encompass everything? Yeah. Yeah. Anything okay. that flies. <laughs> okay. Because you worked at Honeywell, right? In aerospace. Yeah. And does Honeywell do both aeronautical and astronautical? They do. Yeah. They work on mostly components of both space and airplanes. So space could be, they have a lot of NASA contracts. 
at the time the space shuttle and then yeah. also satellites and things like that. And then I, I worked mostly in the jet engine propulsion, mostly private airplanes and building engines for private airplanes. Can you share with us a little bit more about what you did there? I worked on a lot of things, but the majority of the time I spent it on designing. I was a project engineer and was working on how to make our jet engines more efficient. So mm. different combustion and compressor designs, gearbox designs. I did some work on alternative propulsion engines as well. So things like hydrogen and fuel cells and things like that. So did a, a lot of different things in terms of how do we make things fly better <laughs> and more efficiently. And then was a product manager for mechanical components. I can't even wrap my head around that. <laughs> As a layman, that just sounds so cool that yeah. when I get into a plane, because I was, I was flying every week right up to Berkeley, I just think every time, just think it's such a miracle that this thing with these thin little wings can just take off and just soaring through the skies. And uh, it's just amazing how, how it all works. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always tell people, like, even though I know how it works, I, I, I still am amazed because I, I do think it's, there's a lot of, I don't want to call it magic because obviously there's something behind <laughs> how it works, but it's just magical how it all comes together, you know? And I, I actually worked in accident investigation for a while as well, so I also know what could go wrong. And um, right. even that, like, it, it is so many different things that have to line up um, in the wrong way for it to go wrong or yeah. fatally wrong. And just that, I think it's amazing. I, that, that's why I enjoyed working in it so much. What's amazing is, did you ever do any industrial engineering work? I did, yeah. In the beginning of my career, I was a manufacturing engineer and did a lot of industrial type, yeah. Okay, because I, I learned about industrial engineering from Bree and Bree Jenkins. And it just, as I'm thinking about what you're saying, designing an engine is one thing, but then another industrial engineer has to figure out how to assemble it, how to build this thing. Yeah. And I remember last April for uh, SIB, Seminar in International Business. So our SIB was in Brazil and they took us to go visit Embraer mm -hmm. and we got to see the assembly mm -hmm. facility and it is mind-blowing how yeah. it's these massive warehouses and the plane just it starts with the assembly of the individual tube rings to make the tube of the of the cabin and then I'm just, we're just looking at this like, how does someone figure out how to put this thing together? Because there's so many pieces and you're looking at this complex thing. You're like, this is what we're flying in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and just the, the engineering and the precision that needs to go into it and us learning about like RFID tagging of like tools so that if you bring a tool past this line, it needs to make sure that it gets goes back and it's not just sitting in the plane somewhere yeah <laughs> just like the amount of engineering yeah all around that goes into it just is unbelievable yeah just to build an <laughs> engine it, it takes hundreds of engineers working together and each one is specializing on one component and then the project engineers like me are like trying to bring it all together and make sure that everything works together even that and that's just one engine right there's yeah yeah hundreds of other components in the airplane as well that, that is so cool did you get to work on any uh, astronautical stuff 
So I worked very little on space products. I, I did work on uh, when I was a product manager. So I didn't actually build these. Um, it was more proposals that I was working with Blue Origin and um, SpaceX and NASA on some of the crafts that they were working on at the time and helping them develop actuators and valves for some of those crafts, but nothing that I actually design or build. <laughs> That's still cool. <laughs> That's so, so amazing. L let me ask you this. I mean, how many Hispanic aeronautical, astronautical engineers do you know? I don't think I know any actually. <laughs> That's, is that crazy? That's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. When I was working at Honeywell, so I worked there from 2010 to um, 2017, I believe. And I, there were just a handful of times that I can tell you that I was in a room where I was not the only woman and in the room with another Latino. That's probably even less times. So I'm like trying to think of when I, there should have been at least one or two, but I can't even think of when that was. So th th there's not very many of us there. I imagine there might be an alumni who might be listening to this in the car with their kids. What's some advice or just uh, wisdom, hindsight wisdom that you can give to the, the URN kids of the next generation to believe in themselves that not only anything's possible, they can become an, I still can't even remember the words, aeronautical yeah. <laughs> and astronautical engineer. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I, I guess my question is more around, in one way, you say that there are these externalities that influenced you. And in a way, your story is an externality. It's an influence to someone else potentially listening to this. Is there any advice you can give? So I think one of the main things that I have learned and I try to instill in my kids is not to be afraid to stand up for yourself and to pursue the passions that you have, um, regardless of who's around you or who's not, what people are saying or what they're not, but just continuing to push through. I think as a young engineer early on in my career, there were times when I thought I, I don't know if I should continue doing this and I, I might maybe step away from this because of the lack of representation. And there was just so much I didn't know and didn't just couldn't find people that I could relate to to help me get through some of um, those issues that I was having. Right. I think the other the other big piece about that is also finding the mentors and the 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 champions that will help you even if they don't look like you even if they can't relate and i think i i find myself very lucky to have found those people some of the leaders at honeywell that i was able to form uh, friendships with and they were white and male so did not look like me couldn't necessarily relate to my story but they valued my story and they took mm. the time to get to know me and to get to know what I cared about and what I wanted to do with my career and help me form the path that I needed to get there. And without them, I, I wouldn't have been able to move forward. So although there is a lack of representation in tech and in these more science-based careers, I, I think it, it's something that's changing. And I think even if you can't find the people that look like you, even the people who don't look like you can also be champions for you. And 
not being afraid to to reach out to them and not being afraid to you know ask for help when you need it and I, I think that's been crucial for me That is really great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you were at Honeywell for what, almost eight years? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what inspired you to come pursue an MBA? While I was at Honeywell, I think Honeywell was a great launching place for my career. Um, they gave me a lot of great opportunities and I got to do a lot of different kinds of roles and responsibilities that helped me see how a business works at a high level. Within that, I started learning that there were some things that just weren't working. And over time, I was at a, in a product manager position. I was actually a, a product marketing specialist, but I, I did a lot of product management work during that. One of the things that I was really struggling with is aerospace is a very risk-averse industry because we can't afford any kind of risk. So yeah. because of that, it's really difficult to innovate. It's really difficult to do something different. And even if you have an idea of this, you know, great thing that will make it, you know, the airplane more efficient or make it greener or whatever it is. It's really difficult to push against, uh, to push change through um, the company and just the industry in general. I was having a hard time with how do I even lead my teams to think in an innovative way? How do I communicate my message to leadership so that they understand why this is important? I had some wins, but then I also had other things where other times where I was just like, it's just not working out. Something's not clicking. And I, I think this is more about me and who I am as a leader and who I want to be as a leader. And I, I, I need to step outside of this industry for a little bit to be able to learn how to do this effectively. And the way that I felt I could best do that is by going back and getting an MBA. I wanted to get an MBA from a school that was specifically focused on technology and innovation. And I was specifically uh, interested in learning from startups and the startup culture, because I think there's a lot of really interesting ways of um, innovating that happens at startups that doesn't happen in large companies. And I I wanted to learn more about like, what is that? What makes that happen? And so that's why Haas was a very natural school for me to um, be attracted to. And I also wanted something where, you know, because I had been there for so long, I had been there for seven years, a lot of my peers were doing like part-time programs at ASU. But I felt like if I didn't completely step away from it, I wasn't going to completely learn what I wanted to learn. And so I needed to do a full-time program that would take me completely outside of this industry and company and just refocus how I thought about leadership. So once you came to Haas, I noticed that you explored product management at Amazon, right? You had an internship there, but you also had a an internship at the venture capital firm Plexo Capital. Um, just really curious to hear what was pushing you towards the venture capital space. 
I, I feel like I have a lot of different things that I'm passionate about and then trying to figure out how to turn that into a career has been yeah. uh, one of my struggles. Uh, but what I, the way I see it is I have my, what I want to do as a career and then I have all these side things that I want to work on. I, I love technology. I love innovation and leading teams. I, I really enjoy product management. So that's why Amazon for me was just a really great fit. But on the side, the other thing that I'm really passionate about is how do we route capital to more entrepreneurs of color? Right. That's something that I've thought a lot about and I've throughout many years and have dabbled in here and there. But the main issue I see is I, and I specifically think about my community. So, you know, South Central LA, but also just like the, the Latino community that I'm familiar with. Um, I've mostly run in largely immigrant, Spanish-speaking Latino community. And what I see is a group of people that are very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. I know so many people that have, you know, have launched their own businesses and small businesses, but they're doing great things and, and they're very scrappy. Everything that you think of when you think of an, a typical entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, very yeah. scrappy. They do a lot with just very little resources. They're very passionate. They're, you know, working day and night to make these dreams happen. But I don't see enough of them getting the kind of capital and mentorship and all these great things that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs get. And right. I, I see that as a really big problem. And because of the spaces I've been able to be in, even though my career is very different from entrepreneurship or VC, but the circles that I've been able to be in through Stanford and through Haas and through, you know, all these different um, things that I've done on the side, um, I feel like I've learned so much about how this industry works that I want to figure out how to create opportunities for more people of color to, to have the same right. kind of resources. The other big thing is you see a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who've dropped out of high school and college and get millions of dollars in funding to launch companies. That just doesn't happen in my neighborhood, you know, and, you know, yeah. people drop out of, out of high school and that's it. You know, you're working a minimum wage job. And I see that as so unfair because the talent is there. They just don't have the capital to make it happen. And so it's one of the areas that I'm very passionate in, um, in and also interested in continuing to work on as one of my side projects. So I did this internship with Plexo Capital. Lo Tony, he is one of the biggest VCs. He's very passionate about underrepresented minorities, has done great things in terms of routing funding to LPs of color and women, as well as companies and made great investments in, in some of these companies. And so I, I wanted to learn from him. I got in touch with him through one of one of the EW students last year. And I, I just wanted to learn from him. I really just wanted to spend the time <laughs> talking to him and, yeah. and learning more about how he got to where he is and how he thinks about these investments and, and then trying to learn more about how can I do this uh, myself. So it was a great experience to do that. At the time, I was also president of the VC club. So I, I really dove into VC while I was there as a passion more than as a career. And yeah. now that I'm here in, in Seattle, I'm volunteering with a nonprofit called Ventures Nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And what they do is specifically help small business, mostly URM small businesses, get education on how to run a business as well as funding. They do microloans. And so I've been volunteering with some of their classes on just business basics. So just 
How do you build a business plan? Like, how do you understand your cash flow? Like, you know, just the basics of how to run a business. And I think, you know, that's one of the first steps to like helping these businesses be successful. But then the next thing I want to work on in the future is also how do we get that more of that funding to them? I think it's so important that you're doing this work because we just had this conversation. We interviewed as part of the undergraduate Haas uh, alumni podcast. It's a secret side project that we're, we're booting up <laughs> <laughs> for, for the undergrads out of Haas. And there's this alumni, Sally Jan. We just published an episode this week, actually. She is a head at the corporate venture arm of SAP.io. And she was saying one of the things that you know she was telling us was that she cares a lot about women and URMs, right, and and founders of color, and the uh, the initiatives that SAP is pushing out there, and the reasoning, which is something I never really thought about until she brought it up. How do you not support these founders, female and founders of color, because not only do they make up a huge percentage of the population, but how do you build products for them without their representation? Yeah. Right. How do you, (laughs) how do you think about innovation and from a product or service standpoint without including these people? Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Because then you're just building in isolation. You're not necessarily building products and services that are beneficial to everybody. Right. So I I was like, wow, that's very true. Never thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's an underserved population for sure. And I think as we, we talk more about funding women, for example, we're starting to get more women founded companies. And now we have companies like Frida, who they design things around post maternity products that, you know, when I had my kids, I would have loved to have these products. And I always thought like, why doesn't anyone sell products for that post maternity time that no one even talks about what do you need? And, but they're designing it, right? And they're selling it now. And just an obvious thing when you're a woman and going through it. But until we start thinking about this and thinking about how do we fund minorities, then how we're not going to be able to make those strides and serving those communities. And same with the Latino community. It's a growing Latin, it's a growing community in the US. It's one of the fastest growing groups in the US, but without, the entrepreneurs that are serving it, this is a growing market that we're not serving right now. Yeah. This is an area that I'm also very interested in. I think after banking, I the the end goal for me was always to, having founded businesses and sold them, I was like to enter the VC space. That's the natural progression. But then after exploring VC a little bit, I realized my heart was still on the creation side, the founder side. <laughs> I still yeah. want to build stuff. <laughs> but the just the aspect of advisory and mentorship, right, is so important, so critical. And even just yesterday, I was telling my brother that I really need to be more proactive about seeking out advisors and mentors for the businesses I'm building. Because part of the reason why as an entrepreneur, I went to business school is like, I, there's a limitation as to what I can teach myself. I'm very scrappy. I'm very savvy. A student always, I'm always reading, but, you know, I'm only reading what I know to read. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only learning what I um when I'm aware of what I should learn. It's that whole like you don't know what you don't know. And that's where I think having the VCs around, especially for people of color and women, is just so important. Yeah. To be able to provide that level of support on top of the money. Right. Yeah. 
and I think having that outside perspective, especially from the people who are providing the funding and are seeing other companies, they can help you see those blind spots that you're not seeing. Yeah. You know, tell us what it's like to be an engineer at Honeywell and being a mother of three and then coming to business school. I, I just, I just had a baby my last semester of business school <laughs> and that was, that was rough. And I was very fortunate to be able to be at home with the whole working from home COVID yeah. thing. So it actually worked out pretty well, but I can't imagine challenges that you had to face as a mother. Yeah. So having three kids during COVID was definitely tough <laughs> and being in business school during that time. Um, but, but I think for me, my kids have always been my motivation. So I had my kids young. I actually had my oldest while I was at Stanford. So being a mother and being in school wasn't new to me. I've done it before, but I also didn't have three kids at the time. I just had one <laughs> newborn. <laughs> but it was, it, I think it's a lot of, it's shaped a lot of how I think about my career and how I think about just how passionate I am about my career because I have three girls and I feel like, you know, I want them to see the example that I saw in my mom of this mm -hmm. hardworking woman who did not let, you know, any limitations hold her back. And, you know, she continues even to this day to work towards her dreams. And, and I want my kids to be able to see that and to see that there are no limitations for them, especially because they have so many more opportunities and advantages that I didn't have at when mm -hmm. I was growing up. They're growing in a whole other world than I was. I want them to have the examples of a professional woman and a professional career in the U.S. that I, I didn't see when I was growing up. Uh, um, but at the same time, I also want them to be very connected and proud of their of who they are, of their heritage. To me, being Latina is, is really important. You know, everywhere I go, I can't hide how I look. You know, I'm mm -hmm. obviously brown. I'm not even white presenting. I'm, I'm obviously brown. And, and that, that has an impact everywhere I, I go, whether it's positive or negative, it has an impact. And, right. and I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my people. I'm proud of my heritage. And I want them to be proud as well. Um, especially because unlike me who grew up in, in schools who were, that were mostly Latino and black, they're growing up in schools where that are mostly white. And now that we're in Seattle, there's actually more Asians than, mm. than in some of the schools that they were in previously. But Latinos and black students are under 10% in most of the schools. And in fact, mm. they're like six, 5% most of the time. So they really are the minority now. And I, but I want them to be proud of that. I feel like I am, I go out of my way a lot of times to make sure that they're learning about their culture and they're learning about our history, even our history in the US that's not talked about that and that they're learning how this may present itself in the workforce that right. I, I want them to know you can do anything you want to do. But I also warn them about the some of the struggles they might face as they're doing that and how to overcome some of those struggles. So we have a lot of conversations around what is it like to be the only woman or the only brown person in, in a room and lead the, these meetings. You know, now during COVID, they get to hear me leading some of these meetings and, and talk about some, you know, we have these conversations around the dinner table of what is it like to be that, you know, to be the woman who's leading these, these meetings yeah. um, when no one else um, re really relates to you. My husband is also Latino and he works in the education space at community colleges. And he has seen both from the administration and on the student side, 
the struggles that Latino students face. So this is something that's very um, present in how we talk to our kids and how we instruct them. Of We want them to recognize their privilege because despite being a minority, they, they are also privileged with having parents that are educated and having opportunities that around like just knowing the world and knowing different cultures that, that we were not exposed to. And we want them to use that, that privilege for good and to be the voice for the, those who can't speak for themselves. You know, this brings up a question, and it's not often I get to ask this question and, and hear this perspective, but you know, with all the rhetoric that's been going on in this country since Trump came into the presidency, what kind of impact has it had on you know, your family and your kids, especially because you guys are of El Salvadorian descent? And for our listeners, you know, Chris is wearing a you know, Close the Camps t-shirt. What kind of effect has that had? And what, what are the conversations that you guys are having to have with your kids? I think for a lot of people since 2016, it's been a rough time. I think for people of color and especially the Latino community, it's been an even harder time. I, I think I can illustrate this the most with my oldest daughter. She's, she's now 12 years old. She was born in 2008 when Obama was elected as president. And she actually ended up being very passionate about politics from a very young age. So her first election that she knew about when she was four years old, she was actually like really into it, like more than I was. She was watching all the debates. She, wow. I don't think she understood a lot of what was happening, but she was just really right. interested and asked a lot of questions. And during election night, she wanted to have an election night party. And, and it, was, it was just our family, but like she want, she planned everything. She wanted cupcakes and balloons and <laughs> snacks and all kinds of things because she wanted to celebrate the election. And so yeah. since then, it became a family tradition that on election night, we have a family election night party. And we talk about the election. And when she was eight years old, the next election, she also did the same thing, watched all the debates and everything. That 2016 election, I can tell you, it was really rough because she was watching everything. She was hearing the rhetoric around, you know, the bad hombres, the, all, all this stuff about how Mexico is, you know, sending bad people and build the wall and all of these things. And as a child, as an eight-year-old, there's only so much she could really comprehend of what that meant. But mm -hmm. what she did understand was that it was seeing her as a brown person, as someone who has family in Mexico and El Salvador, um, because my, my husband has family in Mexico, that her family was somehow bad people. And that the whole build the wall thing, it really impacted her. Like she cried many times asking like, am I like never going to be able to see my, like my family in Mexico? Because if they build mm -hmm. the wall, like maybe I won't be able to visit them anymore. And we had to have these conversations with her of, you're safe and don't worry like we you know we will take care of you but there's only right. so much reassurance we can give her when like so much is up in the air and right. this rhetoric is happening that night like many for many other people it was really rough on us and especially for her like, she went to sleep crying that election day night the next day we she stayed home from school and we had to stay home from work um, to be there with her because she took it very deeply. Mm -hmm. it, it was just deeply upsetting for her. 
And I think what was harder was that we didn't really have words to reassure her or words to to really tell her it'll be okay because we don't even know is it really going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um since then so she suffers from anxiety so since then we haven't watched the news around her until very recently we started watching the news around her but she just couldn't it, it would cause too much anxiety for her you know we stopped listening to npr we stopped like you know just stopped doing this around her to give her that space to heal mm -hmm. um but you can't you know they're not living in a bubble she's still hearing things that are happening and the camps was something that was very upsetting for her and for us as well, you know, to to think that that children are being incarcerated and taken away from their families. Something that she feared in in 2016. And, you know, we told her, don't worry, this isn't going to happen. And here it is happening. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not happening to her right now. But if you look at the history, it has happened to U.S. citizens in the past as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, going back even to internment camps and all these things that we, that have happened in our history. And so we can't confidently tell her it's not going to happen to us, you know, and, and we can think like, oh, the law will protect us or whatever. But the thing is that like, we're seeing these things happening and there's not a whole lot that we can do to reassure her. And that's been really rough. It, you know, one is I, I'm happy she has the empathy and understands that even though we are living in really in a different world than a lot of our community is right now, that mm -hmm. there's still our community and we're still connected and what impacts our community impacts us. And so I'm happy about that. But the other thing is that as a parent, it's also, you know, it's hard to, to protect our kids from what's happening. Um, now with the Black Lives Matter movement, she's been very involved in that as well. You know, she, because of COVID, we didn't let her go to protests, and but she really right. wanted to go. And she's seen how there's a lot of parallels. You know, we may not be black, but we're equally, you know, we're also impacted by um, police brutality, uh, and we have to support our our black, you know, brothers and sisters. And just seeing how how these injustices are affecting minority communities. It's not, they're not isolated incidents and they're, we can't say, oh, it's not our community or it's not us. It, like, it, it's still things that, it's still human beings that are being affected and right. having that compassion towards them. Uh, it's a long way to say it's been rough since with all the rhetoric that's been happening and with everything that, that, that's going on right now. And honestly, I, you know, I fear for the next election night and she's already talking about the election day party that she wants to have. But there's also in the back of her mind that, that fear of the last time we did this and how impactful that was and what will the next four years look like for us. Right. Thank you for sharing that. It's important to hear these, these stories, right? These perspectives of our fellow Americans, uh, the rhetoric that ripples out into these decisions that uh, impact our friends and families. Yeah. We need to end the episode on a lighter note. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear, what have you guys been doing for, for fun as a family during COVID? We've been playing a lot of video games. We like video games. My kids love video games. I do too. And so Animal Crossing has been big. <laughs> and, um, What's the other one? Just Dance. The kids love Just Dance. What are you guys playing on? Uh, Switch or? On Switch, yeah. On Switch? Okay. Yeah. That's cool. 
Yeah. And then we also just bought a house. It has a large yard. And so we've been spending a lot of time out there trying to, one, clean it up, but then also just giving the kids the room to run around that we didn't have before. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I see some books behind you. I'm curious, you know, are there any books that you recommend for our listeners to learn more about Latinx people? It's hmm. a good question. Trying to look at what I have here. <laughs> I see managerial economics. <laughs> I have a lot of managerial stuff. I don't know. Um, this is actually a kids book that is, is off the top of my head right now. But um, I was just reading it this summer with my daughters and and their cousins. We did a little mini virtual book club during the summer, nice. and it's called the. I think it's called the Rules of Punk. I mean, the first rule of punk. The first rule of punk. Yes. So the the first rule of punk. Um, and it was really interesting to read it with the kids. It's a kid's book. Um, and it's about a, this girl who is navigating, you know, she was born in the U.S. to her mom was Mexican American and her dad, I think was white. And, um, and just navigating that, like being in that intersection of being American, but not and like being proud of your culture, but also ashamed and trying to like figure out like, where do you fit in the world, especially as a middle schooler? Yeah. And her mom, actually, she's an English professor who moves to Chicago to live on campus and teach in Chicago. And and so <laughs> it was really interesting because, like, my kids had that experience of leaving home to, like, live on campus. And their cousins are actually just moved to um, UC Santa Barbara because their dad is doing the, a program there. And so um, wow. that merging of everything, <laughs> of all these different cultures and personalities that we carry when we're U.S. Latin American and and just how do you navigate that? And even though it's from a kid's perspective, I think there's a lot of truth and like it's really true as we grow up that we're still kind of navigating that. And it was interesting having these conversations with the kids of like, you guys are struggling with this and you know, I still struggle with some of this as well. And just kind yeah. of like talking through that it was really interesting. So I'll have to send you more once I think a little bit more about it, but that's the one that's off, uh, on the top of my head right now. <laughs> no, that's that's no worries. That's perfect. It's there's a lot to be said about uh, children's books, right? I mean, they're written by adults who are in a way telling sometimes their own life story, and kids are definitely a lot more mature in many ways than we think they are. What they even have to teach us in return, right. yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been wonderful. This has really been a pleasure, uh, Chris, getting to uh, know you and hear your story. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. No problem. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you, too. This was really fun. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org, that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears! <laughs>